Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. Last week was the much-anticipated American Ornithological Society Bird Names Community Congress, an event organized by the AOS Diversity and Inclusion Committee and attended by many influential voices in the birding community. In addition to ABA President Jeff Gordon and our friend Jordan Rutter of the Bird Names for Birds initiative, the panel consisted of a veritable who's who of former American Birding Podcast guests. I saw Jody Allaire of Birds Canada, field guide authors Ken Kaufman, David Sibley, uh, Gabriel Foley, also with Bird Names for Birds, who's been on the show. So as far as I know, this meeting that occurred last Friday will be put online at some point as of the recording. I don't think that it has if something changes between now and Thursday when this episode goes out. I'll put that information in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. But if, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you sort of know where I come down on it, and for what it's worth, the ABA as an organization comes down on this issue, and we will certainly discuss all that kind of more in-depth in the April of this month in birding panel next week. But I'll take the opportunity here to make a couple comments, just sort of initial reactions to the panel. I was especially interested to hear the opinions of some folks whose take on the bird names issue I did not know, namely Marshall Eiliff of eBird and Danny Bystrek and Dave Zielkowski of the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, the Bird Banding Lab and the Breeding Bird Survey, respectively. And I thought that they might have some some relevant things to say because all three of those those people maintain enormous bird databases used by researchers, and and they might have some insight into sort of the logistical challenges that changing a lot of bird names all at once might entail. But I will acknowledge that that, to my mind, is the most effective argument for the status quo, the strongest argument against changing those names, sort of the, the logistical hurdle. To my surprise, and I think to the surprise of a lot of people, uh, they all sort of acknowledge that it wouldn't really be that big of a deal. We certainly have the capability to search for both old and new names in these databases. You know, Banders and BBS people might might grumble a little bit at first, but let's be honest. You know, I have faith in the ability of the greater birding community and the greater ornithology community that we would get over it and move on. And honestly, as a BBS root runner, my biggest issue is more to do with the sort of antiquated website that we have to enter all our data into than uh, the actual bird names. And I, I know that's not the fault of um, Danny or Dave or the U.S. Geological Survey. That's just perhaps more of a statement as to the priorities of the U.S. government. Uh, breeding bird surveys are relatively low, unfortunately. Um, anyway, I, th I thought eBird and Marshall Iliff's enthusiasm for the movement was particularly heartening because I've always thought that if eBird, you know, just changed the names in their database, um, while of course making them searchable by the old names, at least for a little while, you know, birders would move on pretty quickly. I think eBird is sort of the linchpin here, sort of the axis around which the modern birding community rotates, at least in North America. And, and that's, you know, for better, or for worse, generally speaking, but certainly for the better in this specific case. Anyway, I'll, I'll 
I'll have more to say with the monthly panel next week. Um, but it was a more productive discussion than I sort of expected. And thanks, of course, to the AOS DNI committee for for hosting. You know, we'll see we'll see where this goes from here. On the show this week, light and noise pollution are serious threats to birds during migration. It is the research interest of graduate student Lauren Farr of North Carolina State University. She joins me to talk about it, as well as what it means to do bird research in urban environments. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of April, 2021. As migration heats up, so does the Rare Bird scene in the ABA area. I talked last week about the weather patterns in the North Atlantic that were creating conditions conducive for European vagrants in the ABA area. That pattern may be responsible for a European golden plover in Plymouth, Massachusetts, though the bird has evidently been present and was misidentified for a couple weeks now. Uh, whether or not it arrived with the initial development of that high-pressure system is unknown. You know, mid-April is also a good time for Euro golden plovers in the ABA area just generally. In any case, it's a first state record. A Eurasian kestrel at Plum Island National Wildlife Refuge in Essex, Massachusetts was a state second and probably more clearly associated with that weather system. One of the more remarkable records of the year was the discovery of a zone-tailed hawk photographed in Baltimore, Maryland. This is a first record for Maryland. Birders on the East Coast should be aware as back in 2014, a zone-tailed hawk cruised down the coast from Connecticut to Virginia before disappearing. Other noteworthy birds, a black cat vireo in Cameron Parish, Louisiana, is a state second, as is a limpkin in McCurtain County, Oklahoma. And we've seen a return of some south-of-the-border birds in Texas and Florida in the former. At least three Tamalipas crows have taken up residence in their traditional digs at the Brownsville dump. And for the latter, a Lasagras flycatcher was seen at Everglades National Park this week, the first for the year. That is your Rare Bird Focus for this week for all other interesting birds seen. Recently, check out the Rare Bird Alert at aba.org RBA. That goes up every Friday, or you can join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. This time of year is a tough one for many birds as they make their long, dangerous journey from wintering grounds to breeding territories. The path taken by many seems them passing over or stopping to nest in increasingly urbanized landscapes. These landscape changes affect birds in many ways. Some are obvious, some more subtle, and that is the work that researcher Lauren Farr is doing. She's a PhD student at North Carolina State, just down the road from me, uh, studying urban noise and light pollution and their effects on birds. She's with me now to talk about that. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. Thank you for having me, Nate. I'm super excited to be on the podcast. <laughs> Great. Um, what are some of the biggest problems facing birds in urban landscapes? Oh, yes. So I could go on forever about this. So um, <laughs> urbanization, you know, in general, it's it's growing every day. More people are, you know, moving to more urban areas. And 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 really, if I could go off on a side tangent here, like the whole thing with sure. urbanization yeah. and how it impacts wildlife. You know, I, I never really thought about it that much because when I was um, an undergraduate, I um, studied more animal behavior. So I was more in that mm -hmm. realm and I'm um, still working with birds. So in undergrad, that's how I found, you know, my, my passion for birds and for wildlife. So but coming to NC State, you know, 
Raleigh itself is, you know, a huge, huge urban area. So coming to NC State, I started taking, you know, wildlife courses on, you know, about urbanization and how that impacts wildlife and, you know, all the animals that are around us. And until I took that course, I I, I then became aware that, wow, urbanization is, is a huge deal because where I'm originally from, I'm more in, you know, a rural area, you know, we don't have that much traffic. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, a ton of trees and forest around me. So yeah, Coming, coming to NC State and taking that that class, that was when, you know, it, I, it really hit me. <laughs> um, and then so my with my research, you know, I, I started looking at urbanization impacts specifically on birds because I am an ornithologist. So mm-hmm. and on top of that, you know, birds are awesome. We all know this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I started looking at that and just diving into the literature, you know, as a researcher, that's the first thing we do is, you know, dive into the literature, see what's been found, see what other people have studied and just urbanization in general. You know, people are moving in every single day and with people moving in to these urban environments, they're they're bringing these impacts. So I specifically study um, urban noise and urban light pollution, urban noise. This can be anything, you know, from construction noises. This could be, you know, even, you know, people talking that those those noises, Mm -hmm. you know, all around there, those can impact um, a lot of wildlife, not just birds, but a ton, a ton of wildlife. But with your light pollution, you know, you have um, what we call, you know, artificial light at night. So this can really impact Mm -hmm. um, bird species, particularly, you know, species who migrate. So, um, you know, birds themselves, they they use oriental markers, you know, in order to orient themselves, like, you know, the the sun, the stars, you know, everything like that with artificial light pollution. So this can come from, you know, our car's headlights. It can come from illuminated buildings and billboards. Mm -hmm. It can even come from, you know, street lamps. So a lot of urban areas, you know, at light, you know, at night, they have, you know, a ton of street lamps around, you know, on the sidewalks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So with all of these artificial light sources, this can contribute to what we call sky glow. Sky glow, again, this impacts, you know, our birds who are migrating, you know, this makes them a little bit disoriented. And aside from that, you know, comparing light to noise pollution, light's been more studied. It can impact um, birds in a ton, ton of ways that many people don't know about. Raleigh is such a unique place to do this research because you think of in terms of the light pollution like its footprint is huge right so because there's so much sprawl (laughs) in the triangle i I used to live in chapel hill like i i I remember what it's like it's just it's the urbanized area goes out a long way it does it's not really concentrated it does it does center city area yes um that's that's gotta have like a exponential effect on birds Mm -hmm. because that light that sky glow is just so large, such yes. a big part of the landscape there. Yes, yes, yes. It it has it has a huge impact. And you know what? I I just started noticing, you know, this example. It's it's a really cool example where I live. So I've I've been in Raleigh now for two years. I came, you know, for graduate school. So my first time ever in Raleigh and living in Raleigh. And I, mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. Like I love the Raleigh area. Um, but where where I am, I I started noticing, you know, there there's a lot of robins. So American robins. Um, there are really cool species who you know, really thrive in urban environments. They really take, you know, yeah, urban environments in and they and they use it to their advantage. So I, I started noticing one night, it was around 3 a.m. Don't 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 ask me why I was up at 3 a.m. I probably couldn't tell you, but <laughs> I was I was I was up at 3 a.m. and and I heard some birds singing. And 
as a matter of fact, it was American robins. And so, you know, it's one of these things. So researchers, you know, research has has shown they have found that, you know, that some birds will initially, you know, sing earlier in order to overcome that noise pollution, per se. So going back to noise pollution, some birds will go ahead Mm -hmm. and sing earlier, you know, and get all their singing out before that noise comes along. And, you know, that traffic starts, you know, hustling and bustling and everything like that. So both light and noise pollution has been, you know, affecting many, many species of birds. But with my research specifically, there are some birds who, you know, can use urbanization and thrive in urban environments and, you know, use it to their advantage. And there's others that, you know, might, might not. (laughs) Yeah. You know, are the issues for migratory birds Mm -hmm. different from those that resident birds have to deal with. And you talked about the robins kind of taking advantage of this you know, artificial daylight of yes. streetlights to, yes. to do their do their song. Yes. But, you know, for migratory birds, the, the needs are a little bit different. They're passing over. They're not necessarily using these habitats. Exactly. Um, yes. And so the, the issues, the effects might be different. Yeah, for sure. Going back to that sky glow. So birds, again, they use, you know, the, the sun mm. and stars and everything else like that in the sky, landmarks even. They, they Birds literally have an internal GPS that they use, you know, in order to migrate and yeah. um, orient themselves. But with this, with this light pollution, especially, so, you know, increasing light pollution, creating this, you know, sky glow in the sky, and that's really, you know, impacting our migrating bird species for sure. There, there was one study, you know, yeah. um, that looked at the tribute to light, I believe, it, it was called something like that in, in, in New York City. And they oh, actually yeah. did, yeah, you know, yes, yes. And they, they actually did, you know, a study with this where they had all these lights illuminated and just watched the birds, you know, behavior. Just they literally watched them, you know, become, you know, disoriented and, you know, all of these, all of these behaviors that we would see, mm-hmm. you know, in that natural setting. And then as soon as they turned those lights off, the birds, you know, after a while, they, they went back to normal and they were like, okay. I can see again, like, this is fine. Yeah, so, oriented. yes, yeah. yes. So that that kind of research right there, you know, is is what's so, you know, compelling and impacting, you know, that, you know, for in, for us to actually see it, you know, happening and, and for us to know that, hey, mm-hmm. this is this is a real problem. Yeah. Is there a kind of lighting that is worse for migratory birds than other kinds? Like, is there a, like a relatively easy way for maybe cities or municipalities or whatever to, to kind of change the way that they use light? Yes. Uh, to something that is going to be less effective on birds passing over. Yeah, I'll go ahead and, and give a, a kudo, a shout out to, to citizen science. So um, mm-hmm. there's many uh, citizen science projects that really look at um, light impacts on um, birds as, as well as other wildlife species. So, you know, there's Globe mm-hmm. at Night, there's um, Lights Out Baltimore, etc. And really what these, you know, projects propose to use, you know, automated lights, lights that, you know, go on and off automatically instead of staying instead of lights that you know stay on all night so Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. going back to you know those you know illuminated buildings so buildings that stay on all night you know people people have been like there's no there's no need there's no need for that you know if if people aren't working there at night there's no need for that (laughs) there's no one working yeah it's like why why are these lights on like there there's no need for that so there there (laughs) have been you know a couple of of places that you know made rules and regulations for this and there's some that are starting to you know make it to where you know okay Mm -hmm. your lights need to be you know off at a certain time or okay when the building's not in use you know turn it off i i did get a question one time in Mm -hmm. a uh talk that i did and someone had asked it was really it was really interesting question that, that I didn't really think about and maybe not, not a lot of people think about either is 
um, solar lights. So they had a question, you know, well, you know, I have like these these little solar lights, you mm-hmm. know, um, across my yard, illuminating my path down my uh, sidewalk. So do, do these cause any impact, you know, on mm-hmm. our wildlife and bird species? And for the most part, you know, solar lights, they're pretty good. Any lights that, you know, automatically turn mm-hmm. on and off when not in use, those would be your best bet um, when looking out for our, our bird species there. Yeah, I'm really excited by this new research that you know people like Cornell are doing, where they can actually like birdcast, where they can sort of predict really heavy migration nights, uh, just based on the weather and based yes. on you know just, just just all this research that community citizen sciences have been doing, have been putting yes. into eBird, um, and then say like, all right, you know, the yes. night of September the 14th is going to be a really heavy migration night. That's the night that we need to make sure that all the lights are off. There you um, go. Those those possibilities are just yes. You know, it's, it's yes. Ten years ago, they would have seemed impossible, but but there's just so much cool science now that's yes. informing our decisions on this. It's 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 really amazing. It is really amazing. And you and and you mentioned Birdcast, like it's pretty awesome, you know. And a ton of people, like you said, like they use that to make you know decisions, um, you know, environmental mm-hmm. decisions and everything like that. And the first the first time I got introduced to to Birdcast, I'll I'll be honest, that was when I I first started um bird banding. So my first time ever going out to a banding mm-hmm. station they were they were using this cool thing like on their computer and i was looking at it and i was like what is that like yeah. like what like what is that like i just you know i just see like all, all like this big blurb of just you know different colors and stuff and they're like oh this is birdcast like we're, we're, we're right, watching right. the birds you know migrate and we can tell you know all different kinds of stuff as the birds are migrating when they're migrating when they're going to get here etc and i was like oh my gosh like yeah, this is wow. totally awesome so i so i so i geeked out a little bit yeah, i'm not gonna lie really wild stuff <laughs> Oh, no, totally. Uh, yeah, I think that's a yeah, familiar feeling for a lot of birders yes. when, they, when they're first introduced to something like that. Yes. Yeah, yes. so I'm going to change gears just a little bit. Of course. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to do bird research in an urban setting as opposed to sort of more traditional rural wild landscapes that we think of when we think of wildlife biology yeah the one major difference and it's it's a really great difference is um working with people so you know in urban environments Mm -hmm. again you know we have all these people in those urban environments so of course we're gonna have some kind of interaction with people right so um i'll be Mm -hmm. honest uh and i'm gonna go off on another little tangent here (laughs) so when i first came to ncsu Thank you. So when I first came to NCSU, the the research that I wanted to do, I wanted it to involve more field work, but I wanted it to be sort of away from an urban area. I didn't because I just Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was, you know, a great people person. Like I didn't really (laughs) I didn't really get the point. Like it's it's so funny. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't really get the point of like like I got into wildlife biology to study animals, not people. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I really did not understand, you know, that that social impact of, you know, how -hmm. people could be important, you know, to science. Again, I wanted my own space and my own area out in the forest. You know, just just by myself, just by myself. Um, so my um, initial master's thesis was a project called Cardinal Capture, and it was um, mm-hmm. a citizen science project. So my advisor at NCSU, Dr. Karen Cooper, she is a huge and well-known citizen scientist. Um, so when I first came to NCSU, that was my first time even knowing anything about citizen science, what it was, why mm-hmm. it was important, etc. It took me a while to again understand why it was important. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but um, just, you know, I incorporated the citizen science impact into my um, 
uh, project of involving volunteers. So my project was looking at um, urbanization impacts on um, avian species. And I use the northern cardinal as my focal species. Mm -hmm. So, you know, North Carolina's, you know, state bird, of course. But of course, cardinals are awesome. And they're very abundant. They're very abundant in, you know, urban areas. So, um, and they're they're year-round residency. So we we wanted to work with a bird, you know, that was going to be here. And people know them really well. Like, they're very familiar with cardinals. Yes. 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 People love cardinals. They absolutely love cardinals. Oh, yeah. I was, you know, sitting down with her and she was kind of explaining, you know, that this, you know, to add a citizen science component to my project would be to have some volunteers, you know, out there with me kind of, you know, just just really just they're having their interaction. Um, Because so what this project involved was uh, mist netting. So in order Mm -hmm. for me to capture these um, birds, I had to, you know, go out in people's backyards Mm -hmm. and, you know, mist net in order to capture them and, you know, do do whatever I needed to do with them and then release them. So in order to do this, I had to recruit volunteers. My project was hosted on a platform called SciStarter. So for anyone who's interested in citizen science and, you know, want to know more about it and want to be more involved, SciStarter um, is a really cool website that has all of these citizen science projects in one place and it lets you know how you can become involved. But anyways, I started to advertise it and people could, you know, go on and, you know, read about it and they could sign up if they wanted to. They could ask questions. So this was catered to people in the Raleigh, Durham and Chapel Hill area. Mm -hmm. So the triangle area, if you will. With this project, that's when I started to started to understand why citizen science and the interaction, you know, with the public was important. Because with this project, people would start to ask questions. They would start to ask me questions like, well, why are you doing this? Why is it important? Like, you know, why, like, like, why, why even mess with the birds? Like, what are you trying to figure out? You know, so, and with that comes, you know, curiosity. So definitely in an urban setting compared to a more, you know, forested setting, you're probably nine times out of 10 going to have some kind of interaction (laughs) with people. Um, And then, like I said, particularly, you know, with this project, I was in people's backyards. Uh, But I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, due to, you know, COVID impacts and everything Mm -hmm. like that, a lot of our research, you know, at NCSU, as well as other universities, it got got halted. So some so some research, you know, got canceled, some, you know, kind of kind of hit a standstill moment with my research, you know, again, having these interactions with people and it really wouldn't pass COVID protocols. So I unfortunately had to make the difficult decision. It was so devastating. I mean, I kid you not, it took me, it took me a while to, you know, get Mm -hmm. over it because I was super excited about this project and as well as my volunteers, you know, so, you know, I had to pivot quickly and that's how I started um, researching um, avian survival and urban areas. Mm -hmm. So it still had that same component with research urban noise and light pollution, but it took out that citizen science component altogether and, you know, interacting with people, which honestly, at the very beginning, again, I wasn't really looking forward to it because I'm, I'm a me, myself and I person, you know, you know, until I don't need to be. But but I really did, you know, miss that component um, once I figured out, you know, that I wouldn't wouldn't be able to pursue that that aspect. Yeah. So I, I have a question about working with cardinals. Um, I assume that if you're misnetting cardinals, yes. in, a, you know, in people's backyards, you sort of have an opportunity for people to get up close and personal uh, with the cardinals. Um, yes. They did. They bite so hard. Like I've banded cardinals before and they are the worst. 
Uh, and so I imagine you wouldn't have too many opportunities to like put cardinals in people's hands. I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew I knew this yeah. question was coming for sure. So so anyone anyone who's handled a northern cardinal, they are a bird banders oh, dream. Worst. They oh. really, really are. So <laughs> so I kid you not. So when when we were, you know, developing this project, we were trying to think of a species, you know, to again, you know, study. Mm-hmm. And my advisor made the made the made the suggestion. She was like, Oh, well, how about northern cardinals? And you know me, I just I ran with it. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, Cardinals are awesome. You know, they're they're year round, they're all around. So I had to go out and get training and you know, miss netting and bird banding, mm-hmm. etc. So I went out to um Powder Mill Avian Research Center. They're they're up in Rector, Pennsylvania. Um and so I went out there and I told them I was like, yeah, I'm doing this really cool project. You know, I'm I'm studying Northern Cardinals. And they just all, you know, looked at me and they just started <laughs> laughing. And I'm yeah. sitting here like, why, why I'm like, why are people laughing? I'm like, what's well, so funny? Cardinals are awesome. And they were like, when we catch a cardinal, We'll let you get it out of the net. We'll let you extract it and you'll and you'll see and you'll see why why we're laughing. So so we so we got a cardinal and I'm I'm sitting there, I'm fooling with it. This bird was so dramatic, yeah. trying to bite me, trying to get out of the net, etc. And I was like, I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, okay, well, this is well, well this is normal, you know, because birds, you know, with misnetting, it is a stressful situation, mm-hmm. you know, and some people, you know, I know some people still don't understand the importance of, you know, misnetting and bird banding. And that's one of the concerns is, you know, well, this is causing real stress to the birds. Like it's a very invasive process. So, anyways, but so I I I got the bird out, you know, and I took it out and I was holding it, and the and this bird literally just chomped down <laughs> on my finger and it would not let go. And that was the moment. <laughs> That I understood what everybody was referring to. Oh my gosh. So yes, Cardinals are, Cardinals are great. Cardinals are wonderful. (laughs) They're mean. (laughs) So, and someone, someone, someone taught me this, this trick, you know, they were like, you know, well, whenever you're handling a Cardinal, maybe try to look for, you know, like a stick or something, something that they can put in their mouth so that they can hold on to that stick instead of holding on to your finger. And and by golly, it works. Yeah. I've been been with bird banders (laughs) that have, uh, that carry on little toothpicks and put the toothpick in the Cardinals bill. Uh, when they get yes, it out to keep it yes, from uh, toothpicks, any, to anything like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so not, and, and not a lot of people, surprisingly, not a lot of people know, you know, about that trick. So, you yeah. know, for anyone listening, if you're a bird bender <laughs> you and you're out there pro handling tip. cardinals and there you go, pro tip for sure. <laughs> <laughs> there was a report that came out kind of early in the pandemic about how, you know, decreased noise pollution in urban environments was having an effect on, I, I, I can't recall, I think it was white crown sparrows singing, like <laughs> supposedly the birds were singing more complex songs. Um, do you make anything of this? Are the birds capable of like responding that quickly to a decrease in noise? Or maybe it's just a matter of people paying attention more. I feel like there are a yeah, couple things going on there. For sure, for sure. So there's this thing that we call behavioral plasticity. I know that's 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 a lot of scientific jargon. Mm-hmm. So but basically it it really it. is it really is basically, you know, saying that, you know, birds are able to alter their behaviors in urban environments when, you know, stuff like this happens, you know, with noise and light pollution. So there have been a lot of studies especially done, you know, in Europe, which have found that, you know, birds are able to alter their vocalizations. And this is mm-hmm. really 
really a response to noise pollution. So again, trying to overcome that noise pollution that's created by, you know, not just us humans, but there are, you know, there, there's different kinds of noises. So there's natural noise and there's anthropogenic noises. So that'd be going back to, you know, traffic sounds or construction sounds, et cetera. Our natural noises, that's anything from, you know, like wind, you know, water, waterfalls, you know, things like that would be our natural noises. There are um, some bird species who can alter their vocalizations in order to overcome um, anthropogenic noise pollution. So they're able to, you know, change their the, the frequency of their songs. They're able to, you know, change um, the 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 uh, tone, if you will, you know, the the amplitude, everything. So it's it is pretty cool, and it is an, an an advantage for sure for the bird species that are able to do this. So the 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 study, you know, yeah, with with the sparrows, that that's I'm I'm not surprised that you know that's that's happening with those hmm. with those bird species because sparrows are able to you know alter their their vocalizations um, in Europe. Uh, European blackbirds, that's one species um, over there in mm. Europe that are able to do yeah. it, you know, as well. Hmm. well. That's interesting. How do community members, non-scientists who are interested in getting involved in this sort of work, mm-hmm. how do they find out whether these sorts of things are going on around them? Oh, yes, that's a good question. Citizen science, that's that's one. That's a good way to become involved and become more aware there are these things that, you know, lead scientists and researcher will do, you know, they'll, you know, for some projects, not all, but they'll, they'll sort of provide you with a, we call it a report back. So they'll, they'll provide you with, you know, details mm-hmm. um, and information of what, you know, they have found in their, in their research and what other volunteers have found, you know, and people can use, can use that information, you know, and can look at it and see what other people, you know, have been finding. But again, not only that, but just the involvement in general, it makes people, you know, more aware you know about what's going on around them which again going back to what you know my my initial thought you know all about citizen science and interacting with people i'm sitting here like why is this why is this important like why is this even a thing like you know why like why people <laughs> you know but um with yeah so so with this it's it's a very valuable tool for you know your your everyday person to become involved you know become involved and become more aware of what's going on around them lights out baltimore is one um globe at night is another one um if you go on SciStarter again on the SciStarter website there's tons of projects there that people can look into and you know mm-hmm. learn more about um as far as like you know maybe like your neighborhoods that might be a little bit hard you know to gather information from there but it's not impossible but i know you know some people i got this one question from um a person in, in a talk that I did and they were and they asked the same thing they were like well I have a neighbor and they're doing x y and z you know and I'm and, and I'm really not you know liking how you know that's impacting the environment so you know what what can I do so there's there's tons of information on the internet I know that's a blunt <laughs> I know that's a blunt answer <laughs> and you might even get lucky and you know go on the internet and find you know an environmental assessment or anything like that for your you know your area your neighborhood etc so those are there's mm-hmm. there's many ways that people can be become involved. Um, again, like they can be involved with the science, you know, and be really into it. And with that, they can also, you know, learn and become more aware of the situations that are happening. Lauren Farr is a PhD student, a bird researcher at North Carolina State University. You can learn more about her and her research at lfar.com. I'll have the link 
down in the show notes. Thank you so much, Lauren. I hope the end of the pandemic means your research. Yes, uh, will go yes, I, I, I am looking out. forward to it. I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm shifting gears and and moving more and moving out of urban ecology a little bit and going more into avian ecology, researching um, red cockaded woodpeckers. I'm really looking forward to that. So, oh, we'll have to <laughs> once you get some more stuff, we'll have to talk. We'll have to have you back to talk about that. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. I, I, I am your person. I, I can't <laughs> wait. My first, my first field season oh, is right coming on. up, and I'm super excited. So definitely keep me in mind. But I mean, it was it was a pleasure. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really I really enjoyed our conversation. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by joining the ABA. You get magazines about birds. You get discounts to our partners like Video Books and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And you get the knowledge that you're helping us support a better birding community here and beyond. You get information about all our memberships at aba.org slash join. I do want to make some shout outs this week to Richard Virch of Ashland, Wisconsin, Robert Barona of Calgary, Alberta, and Donna, Adam, and Lincoln Hayes of Little Rock, Arkansas, who write that the podcast is fantastic. They love the work that the ABA does for birds and birders a lot. Thank you so much. That is such a nice thing to say. All of those people recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Again, thank you. It really means a lot to hear from you. Hey, if you enjoy this show and want to do one more thing, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. We certainly appreciate that as well. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who suggests that if you're really interested in getting involved in raptor programs based in the, you know, the southern part of the ABA, probably, you can head over to Kite Starter. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has this Kickstarter project involving, you know, releasing those quasi-feral quail to boost wild populations in places where they've been extirpated. Uh, it's called Bob White Starter. Additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who are pushing a project to place random piles of barbed wire in shrubby habitats, and they're, they're calling it Shrike Starter. You can find us online at ABA.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. You know, I sent an email to the U.S. Nightjar Survey Network, suggesting that they would get way more volunteers if they changed their name to Nightjarter. Just a thought, just throwing it out there. Questions, comments, corrections, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.